The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exist to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Well, as you've heard from Andy Wynn, we're going to continue our study this morning in 1 Corinthians 13, so go ahead and open to 1 Corinthians 13. We're zeroing in on just one aspect, negative aspect of love. Love is not self-seeking, or perhaps a little simpler, love is not selfish. As we look at that one assertion, you may well wonder why I think it worthwhile to spend an entire sermon on just this one aspect of love. But I consider this topic, love, to be the goal of our salvation. In terms of the massive change that God works on the human condition, the human heart, he moves us sovereignly by his grace, by the power of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit, from being fanatically committed to self-interest, a selfish mindset that's followed by a selfish lifestyle. He moves us from that to finding perfect fulfillment in ourselves in love vertically for God, certainly, but 1 Corinthians 13 is primarily about that horizontal love that we have for other people. To be set free from selfishness into a perfectly loving frame of mind and heart and a loving lifestyle. Now that's where we're all headed, we who are in Christ, we're headed there in heaven. We are going to be like that in heaven. And this may be the hardest aspect of our journey of sanctification, for from birth we have had this monster of selfishness raging within our souls. Now every Easter my family uh, decorates eggs, and we do it by taking eggs, hard-boiled eggs, and putting them in containers of dye. Uh, So you could picture purple dye and and putting an egg in there. And we all know that if you put the egg in there for 30 seconds and then lift it back out, all of the dye will drip off the surface, the hard surface of the eggshell, and there'll be no difference. If you took it and ran it underwater, it would look exactly as it did a moment before. You have to leave it in there. And the longer that the egg is in the dye, the more deeply it is colored with that color, purple, let's say. And so it is with our minds and hearts when it comes to the Word of God. We need to settle in on key texts like this one and let it marinate into us. It needs to seep into the pores of our being. We can't just go quickly past this love is not self-seeking and think it's going to make any difference at all. And so as we come to this, we have, because of our hearts, Uh, we have this natural resistance to this message. We are staggeringly selfish, stunningly selfish. And honestly, we hardly see it. We don't even realize it. We have blind spots. So this is a journey of sanctification. It's right down the center of the transformation the Holy Spirit wants to work in us. A number of years ago, I remember I was preaching on Matthew 16. And there in verse 24 and 25, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever wants to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for me will find it so as I was thinking about that text I realized how difficult it is for us to deny ourselves and as I did I began with an illustration and it and it came from nature the king salmon 
as it makes this incredible journey back upstream in order to spawn and die. Uh, The king salmon are born in some small tributary of a stream somewhere, of a larger stream, maybe in Alaska. And then it will swim downstream, that's the easy part of the journey, all the way down into the Pacific Ocean. And as it enters into that water, amazingly, biologically, it acclimates to a saltwater existence from the fresh water in which they were born. And then they'll swim as much as 2,000 miles or more in their lives until they reach full maturity. And in the summer of their maturity, inner instinct and some other forces that we can't even understand, something that God has set up within, the, within their being, they begin a journey back. They begin to navigate back, not only to their parent stream, but actually to the very tributary where they were born. It's really quite remarkable. Now, this journey upstream is staggeringly arduous. The fish batter themselves against the rocks as they leap waterfalls, as they jump upstream. Occasionally, unlucky ones, so to speak, are eaten by eagles or bears. But the ones that are able to avoid that, they expend immense amounts of energy to swim upstream. They stop eating once they begin this journey, uh, once they enter fresh water. And so their bodies are being steadily depleted of fat. 90% of their fat reserves are used up. 50% of their protein is consumed as they make this incredible upstream journey. Then once they've completed it and they go back to that tiny little tributary where they were born, then they spawn and die within a week. Now, perhaps you've seen pictures of of a a fully mature king salmon jumping the waterfall, and it's uh, amazing. You think about the power of the whitewater, of the river, that they are fighting against every mile, every foot, really, of the journey. But they do it. It's a natural journey. Jesus is calling on us to make a supernatural journey and to go against the flow of our sin nature every step of the way. This upstream battling that the King Salmon does is a picture of the fight that we are in for if we want to genuinely love our neighbor as ourself, that we can fight our self, self self-interest, every moment. Jesus, in Luke's gospel, adds the word daily. Jesus calls on us to deny ourselves daily and take up our cross daily and follow him. And so this is the, uh, the challenge that's in front of us as we look at this text today. Love is not self-seeking or love is not selfish. Now my mentor as I, as I learn this text has been, as I mentioned, primarily Jonathan Edwards who wrote 17 sermons on 1 Corinthians 13 and zeroed in on this in particular. Charity and its fruits is the overall work. You can get it and read it. And so I'm going to borrow his insights. I'm going to lean on his outlines and some of his cross-references, mixing in my own thoughts as well. But he has been an amazing mentor. Also, along with that, some of you are aware that John Piper, in his uh, book, Desiring God, which has really shaped his entire ministry, so much of it comes from Edward's meditations on love and on uh, the nature of self-love, what healthy self-love is and what unhealthy self-love is. And we'll get in it, but all of that came from Edward's meditations, quite remarkably. John Piper says that in the world, there are two irresistible forces at work shaping uh, all of human history, and they really have to do ultimately with our salvation. The first and greatest irresistible force is the drive, the determination that God has to be glorified, that God be glorified. He is absolutely committed to his own glory. We, human beings, are absolutely committed to our own happiness. 
And these two come together in our salvation and in a slogan that, if you know anything about John Piper's work, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied or delighted or happy in him. Sadly, however, that drive that we have that is natural to us as human beings to be happy, to be satisfied, when Adam fell into sin became twisted and perverted. Adam fell from the moral perfection in which he was created. His heart was corrupted with sin. His heart was designed to love God above all else and then love other creations in their proportions. Um, But uh, instead of that, the heart became twisted. We were supposed to see the greatness of God and to love him. We were supposed to see the beauty of all creation, including other people. Uh, To love all of those creatures, especially human beings, created in the image and likeness of God that we would delight in them. And so, because of sin, our hearts were made, to, uh, were made to constrict. Instead of expanding and swelling up vertically to the infinitude and the magnitude of God's greatness, and then horizontally to the beauty of creation, especially other people, sin acted as an astringent. It, it caused us to, to shrivel inward, to pucker inward, to contract within ourselves. And so, love, self-love became corrupted. Self-love became the master of the soul of man. And Adam's children, his descendants, were all born in that cursed condition, made in his likeness and made in his image in sin and in corruption. But God, God in his infinite mercy stepped into our helplessness and into our corruption and our selfishness in the form of his only begotten son. He stepped into this world. He sent his only begotten son to liberate us from sinful self-interest, to set us free from fanatical commitment to self so that we will spend eternity worshiping God but also cherishing and loving others. That's where we're heading. Now let's zero in on Jonathan Edwards' first adjustment. As he begins in this, in this sermon on love is not self-seeking, He begins by a a very critical adjustment in our thinking, an important disclaimer. Christian love is not opposed to all self-love. This is very important. Christianity does not cause human beings to cease loving themselves entirely or in all respects. It doesn't tell us to cease trying to be happy or blessed or delighted. If Christianity were to do that, it would destroy our very humanity itself. We would cease to be in the image of God, for God made our hearts to find delight and blessedness ultimately in himself. God is therefore not a cosmic killjoy, like he's looking over the ramparts of heaven to see if anybody's happy anywhere and yelling down at us, cut that out. Like you think about the giant in in Jack and the Beanstalk stalking around in in his heavenly kingdom. Fee-fi-fo-fum, trying to sniff out any human happiness and crush it. That is not the God of the Bible. It's not the God. It's actually Satan. Satan hates human happiness. John 10.10, the thief, ultimately that's Satan, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Well, there's the contrast right there. God is not a cosmic killjoy at all. He wants to fulfill our delights in himself and in all that he's made. The fact that God desires or even commands human self-love is obvious in the second great commandment. We are commanded to love our neighbors as ourselves. If God hated all self-love, why would he use it clearly as a measure of the way by which we should love our neighbor? 
Notice that the command does not say we should love our neighbor more than ourselves, but love our neighbor as ourselves. So that's the measuring stick of how we do it. All of the commands and indeed the promises of God in the Bible appeal in some sense to our self-love or our self-interest or our desire to be blessed. He set before the Israelites blessings and curses. The ultimate blessedness he gives us in Psalm 16, verse 11, where the psalmist says, you have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Listen to this, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. That's a direct appeal to us in our desire to be filled with pleasure and joy. What that psalm says is we're going to find it at God's right hand in heaven. The saints in heaven will spend eternity swimming in a sea of pleasure. An ocean of happiness. That's what heaven's all about. They will love their own happiness to a level we can scarcely comprehend. And so if self-love were evil, then why would God perfect it so in heaven? He appeals for us to find our perfect happiness, our perfect blessedness in God, in our heavenly home. Interestingly, even this chapter itself appeals to a healthy self-love. Look again at verse 3. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. It's like the Holy Spirit saying uh, through Paul, hey, you want to gain something? Then love while you sacrifice. That's what he's saying. You don't want to not gain anything, do you? So there's a whole appeal here uh, to a healthy self-interest or self-love. We also know instinctively, I think, that for an action from any human heart to be genuinely loving, that heart has to delight in doing it. There has to be some enjoyment in the heart or it's not really love. It's robotic. If we were to do even the most sacrificial acts of service to another person and got literally no delight out of it, it would not be love. Conversely, you can imagine, I want you to picture a little girl who's drawing a picture for her daddy because it's his birthday. And she is smiling and she is humming to herself and she's coloring the best she can and she's got an idea of what he would like and she is working on this picture and she's just happy. And I don't think she could put into words what she's happy about, but I think I know what she's happy about. She's happy in the combination of his delight and hers coming together in the picture, in the giving of the picture. She is looking forward to the hug, the happy hug he's going to give her when he looks at the picture. That's what love is. Her heart is filled with love for her daddy because she's happy in the gift she's going to give. So it is with worship, vertically. Any worship we really do, It's our hearts kindled and heated up and delighted in God. That's what worship really is, and heaven's going to perfect that. So if all self-love were wrong, then how could we ever really love at all? God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful worshiper. God loves a cheerful servant. We are to find delight in loving God, and, and especially in this context here, loving others. All right, so if Christian love is not opposed to all self-love, what kind of self-love is it opposed to? Well, Christian love is opposed to unhealthy or inordinate self-love, says Jonathan Edwards. Sin takes the healthy self-love, which is essential to our very humanity, and twists it to become unhealthy and inordinate. Inordinate means outside of boundaries that God has set up, out of proportion, 
imbalanced, grotesque. I've used the word twisted. Uh, You could picture a tumor, which is vibrant with life, but it's a deadly kind of life. It's greedily taking resources from the body, and the tumor's growing and growing until at last it kills the person. Uh, So this self-love is like that. It's a vibrant, lively, energetic, evil thing in our souls. So uh, the self-love that Christian is opposed to is love which finds happiness confined to self. It's confined to me, to the exclusion of others, ultimately God above all else, but also horizontally as this chapter is concerned about the exclusion of other people. Love is not self-seeking. When we say that love is not selfish or self-seeking, it means a love that is limited to self, pushing aside everyone else. A healthy, mature Christian, therefore, is called to imitate Christ. I love that Wes chose the song, Show Us Christ. I, I think this sermon, if you hear it properly, you will see how, how selfless, beautifully selfless was the love of Christ. And we can and should imitate Christ. Uh, Jesus found delight. It was his good pleasure to give people the kingdom. He loved healing sick people. He loved speaking truth to truth-starved people. He loved driving out demons. Remember that woman that was bent over and hunched over and kept in chains physically even by demonic force. Jesus set her free on a Sabbath. She was a daughter of Abraham and, and Satan has kept her bound and he just set her free. He delighted in that. He loved uh, setting, setting sinners free from their sinful lifestyle like Zacchaeus, setting him free from his covetousness. When he said, when Zacchaeus said, I'm, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm giving back what I've taken wrongly. I'm going to repay fourfold. And Jesus delighted and said, today salvation's come to this house. And so there's, there is a delight in Jesus' heart in seeing the kingdom of God take over. He just loved that. And so also, we are called on to imitate that expansive, including others delight. I am delighted to see the blessings of the gospel work in somebody else's life. Now contrast that with the selfishness, that inward focus, that astringent, um, skewed kind of love that is natural to our sin nature. Again, I I think about my favorite whipping boy in this, Ebenezer Scrooge. I can do that because he was a fictitious character. But think about what uh, Dickens wrote about him. He was a tight-fisted, hand-at-the-grindstone Scrooge. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire. That is our sin nature personified. There's nothing generous coming from it. It's hard, self-focused. Scrooge's pleasure was in money, and that's a perfect display of idolatry. He loved it to the utmost as a creature as an idol, without any delight in the God who gave it or the people it could bless until he was transformed. And so it is with any recluse addict binging on electronic entertainment or drowning his sorrows in drugs or alcohol or a porn addict alone in the dark staring at images or a glutton eating, stuffing his face, trying to get pleasure out of the food in and of itself. There's a greediness and an inward focus in that idolatry. It's totally self-focused, a a pursuit of the pleasure of senses without any vertical love to God and thankfulness and any horizontal including of others 
in that idolatrous binge experience. Edwards put it this way, a Christian spirit is contrary to that selfish spirit which consists in the self-love that goes out after such objects as are confined and limited, such as a man's worldly wealth or the honor that consists in a man's being set up higher in the world than his neighbors, or his own worldly ease and convenience, or his pleasing and gratifying his own bodily appetites and lusts, end quote. The wicked selfishness of the heart is to find love in these creaturely things, these creatures, without any relationship to God or others. All right, how does Christian love oppose that? How does it oppose selfishness or self-seeking? Well, first, the work of salvation moves us out of ourselves to seek first and foremost vertically to glorify God. And then secondly, having done that, to move out horizontally and seek delight in the blessing of others. So when the Holy Spirit works salvation in us, he expands our constricted, inwardly self-focused, sinful hearts upward to himself. We are given a vision in our hearts of the glory of God in the face of Christ, this beautiful light that shines in the previous darkness of our hearts, and it is beautiful, and it's attractive, and it's the glory of God. And we love him, and we are moved by faith. We see him and delight in him and move upward. Essential to that, then, is a growing desire, like the little girl drawing the picture, a growing desire to please him. We increasingly realize that we should desire nothing on earth that does not please our Heavenly Father. We would, we would not want the whole world to be given to us if we should forfeit or lose our souls. We would not want to have a golden bed of pleasure if we knew that God were displeased with it. We don't want that. We want Him to be pleased. We want to find out what pleases the Lord, and we want to do it. Beyond that, we also move out to seek and to please and bless other people horizontally. So first and foremost, there's a health coming vertically in our relationship with God that's very other-centered, but we find our delight there. Then we move out in a lesser way, but a very important way, and it is the focus of this chapter, to other people. And we love them, and we want to see them blessed. We want our, our hearts wrapped up in their blessedness. We desire to alleviate suffering. We want to bring blessing. This is especially true when it comes to eternity. We want to alleviate eternal torment of hell that people would hear and believe the gospel and not spend eternity separated from God. We also want to see lesser blessings coming to Christians and non-Christians alike. We yearn for that. Many commandments show this outward movement away from selfishness to blessing others. For example, Philippians 2.4, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Or again, 1 Corinthians 10.24, nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Again, 1 Corinthians 10.33, same chapter. I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. And then Romans 15.2, each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up, and many such verses. The grace of God then works in us a deeply sympathizing and merciful spirit. For us as Christians, we begin to sympathize, to not only rejoice with those who rejoice, but to mourn with those who mourn. Selfish people make much of their own afflictions, as though no one in history has ever gone through as much suffering as they're going through right now, and no one can understand the depth of their suffering. They make much of that. 
Also, selfish people who are not suffering do not have it in their hearts to move out toward those who are suffering so that they make sacrifices of time, energy, money so they can alleviate other people's suffering. They do not do that. They make much of their own sufferings and they make very little of other people's sufferings. But the grace of God heals us from that narrow selfishness. It causes us more and more to see other people's sufferings. Even our own suffering, we see it in light of ways we might possibly be able to minister to others that are similarly suffering. We see Christians that get a diagnosis of cancer. They have a a serious, life-threatening disease. But some of the most mature people I've ever seen have saw that as a platform to minister to other non-Christians who have the same diagnosis. And so, to some degree, that individual is minimizing their own suffering. They don't think about it, oh, how much I'm suffering. They're thinking, what can I do with the time I have left to minister to others who are suffering the same way? Christian love takes delight in bringing blessing to others and supplying the needs of others. It also causes us to care about what's going on around us. I think about COVID-19 and so many opportunities we have to see the suffering in the world. We're not as able as ordinarily we would be directly to minister unless we are in the health care for doctors, nurses, etc. We can, but, but uh, we, we understand that this, that this disease is leaving a trail of wreckage around the world, economic wreckage, physical ailments, all kinds of things, and there's going to be much work for Christians to do, and for us to have our heart expand, to care about what's going on here in Durham, or in Raleigh, Chapel Hill, our geographical region. Edwards said this, a man of right spirit is not a man of narrow and private views, but is greatly interested and concerned for the good of the community to which he belongs, particularly of the city or village in which he resides, and for the true welfare of the society of which he is a member. So in other words, it's, it makes you civic-minded and care about what's going on right in your own community. Ultimately, though, it has us care about the lost, the spiritual condition of the lost. Psalm 119, 136 says, Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. So the psalmist there has an emotional reaction to the brokenness of lawlessness. He's not indignant and angry. He just sees the brokenness of it. There is a righteous anger. I understand that, and and Jesus showed that. But Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He wept over his enemies. Moses interceded for Israel and was willing that his own life be taken and Israel spared. The apostle Paul said he had sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart for lost uh, Jewish people in his own generation. And he was willing even that he would be denied heaven, that he would give up his own soul if it could be. He knew it couldn't, um, but that the lost of the Jews would be saved. So Christian love will increasingly be willing to make sacrifices for the salvation of the lost. I think especially about the missionary enterprise that's been going on for 20 centuries. I had my IMB trustee meeting this week, and the IMB is going to be in a very challenging position economically because of what's happened to the economy of the world, but especially um, in America. And so we need to begin praying for financial support for missionaries. But think about the missionary spirit willing to go to some distant land to face challenges, persecutions, suffering, even death, death from disease, or in very rare cases, death from martyrdom, willing to do that so that others can be saved. So that's being completely, not completely, but as much as we can be cured of the kind of selfishness that uh, this scripture is addressing. 
So the spirit of Christian love moves us out to make sacrifices for others. 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. This is the opposite of the spirit of Scrooge, that stingy, grasping, hard-as-flint, selfish spirit. Instead, it looks at all the earthly blessings and opportunities we have as a conduit of blessings to those around us. Now, what evidence, uh, according to Jonathan Edwards, what evidence is there that Christian love must oppose selfishness? What scriptural or theological support can we put under this? Well, let's begin by looking at the nature of love itself. Love, by its very nature, moves outward from itself. It goes out from itself to another. Imagine you're at a wedding. I saw this in a movie. It had nothing to do with the wedding. But it had to do with one of these... These, Ill, these extravagant French kings. I don't know if it was the Sun King or who it was. But he had a servant walking around with a full-length mirror so he could look at his outfit all day long. Imagine if you went to a wedding in which the couple didn't look at each other at all, didn't talk to each other, didn't talk to their guests. They just looked at themselves in the mirror the whole time. Like, what in the world? Is there any love here? Um, can I introduce you to one another? You're, you're going to love each other for the rest of your life. That's what the wedding is. And so, essentially, love has to move outward to include another. It can't be self-absorbed. It can't be selfish. That's what love really is. But specifically, Christian love is opposed to all of the worldly counterfeits of love. There's a lot of selfishness in apparent love. People make connections. Non-Christian people make connections that are really all about self-interest. They join clubs. With, with common interests, and they boast over one another in that, and they're really, it's like a mutual admiration society. They know they're going to get a lot, of, a lot of feedback that stokes their pride and their ego. Uh, back in the days of the, the flourishing of the Bible Belt, even in, in regions like this, like this city, people would join a First Baptist church for social reasons or business reasons or other connections. It was ultimately selfish. It wasn't other-centered at all. It all came back to me. But Christian love is the opposite. Christian love moves out supernaturally and causes us to include others and ultimately God. Edwards calls, and this is a beautiful image, a plant transplanted into the soul out of the garden of heaven. Isn't that beautiful? By the holy and blessed spirit of God. So it has life it has its life in God, not in itself. So this holy seed of love has been planted in you supernaturally from the garden of heaven. It's a seed of love, and it starts to move out vertically toward God, but yes, sweetly, horizontally toward others. Thus, Christian love soars high above all lowly motives and selfish connections. This is seen especially in love for enemies. You get nothing back, nothing. We're called on to love our enemies so that we can be like our Father in heaven who causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Never gets thanked for it. But he just does it out of an overflow of love. So also Christian love moves us to make the same kinds of sacrifices. Jesus said in Luke 6, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, curse you, Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone forces you and takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Now, this kind of thinking is so radical and so transformative that Jesus actually calls it a new commandment. He says in John 13, 34, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. 
Jesus is very well aware that the Old Testament horizontal law could be summed up in this statement, love your neighbors yourself. That's right from the Old Testament. He knew that, that that command was actually an old commandment. But what is new is the measure, the example, the pattern of love that we have now that Jesus has come. Now that Jesus came and lived that life in front of us that we read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when we see what kind of selflessness the kind of self-denial that went right to the cross, even to death on a cross, dying in our place under the wrath of God and then being raised from the dead on the third day so that in his death we have our forgiveness and in his life we have eternal life and he did it all for us and he lived out day after day so that Jesus, when he says a new commandment, what he's saying is what's new here is I am the example of love. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Jesus actually takes possession of this commandment and makes it his own. In John 15, 17, he says, this is my command. I love it that way. Say it that way. This is my command. I own it and I'm giving it to you. Love each other. So Jesus' perfect pattern of humble service to everyone he met, everyone who came to him with a need, that is our new pattern of love that we should follow. And no one loved better than Christ. No one loved his enemies better than Jesus. It was while we were still sinners and still enemies that Christ died for us. And he gave the maximum display of of love to those who could never suitably repay him. Christ has united his heart with ours. He speaks of us as though we are him, like we are part of him. Remember what he said to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul answered, who are you, Lord? It's one of the great questions of all redemptive history. Who are you, Lord? Spend eternity working that one out, Saul. But in the meantime, I am the one you are persecuting. Same thing with the sheep and the goats. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you you nursed me to health. I was in prison and you came and looked after me. When did we do that? Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. There is a, a union between Christ and his heart and his people. His heart is united with them. And he spent himself fully for our sakes. Everything he had to give, he gave away. Edward said this, His love did not rest in mere feeling, nor in light efforts and small sacrifices. Can I just tell you those words pierced me? Christ didn't love that way. He didn't love in light efforts and small sacrifices. He gave up his own ease, comfort, interest, honor, and wealth in heaven. And then he became poor, outcast, and despised. And he lived it to the end of his days. He had nowhere to lay his head. And he did it all for us. Not mere feeling, not light efforts, and no small sacrifice. That's how he loved. And Christ did all of this without any expectation of any of us ever being able to suitably love him in return. So how is that applied to us? Well, we become united with others in our hearts. We shall seek not only our own things, but we shall seek, says Edwards, in our hearts to be so united with others that we shall look on their circumstances as if they were our own. We shall endeavor to be interested in their good as Christ was in ours. We shall be ready to forego and part with many of our own things, in many cases, for the benefits of others, as Christ did toward us. 
And these things we will do without any expectation of being repaid by them, as Christ had no expectation of being repaid by us. In this way alone is this deadly, relentless principle of selfishness finally defeated and finally destroyed. So examine your life. Examine your life and seek in him a transformed heart. Look at yourself. First, I have to ask, are you a Christian? Are you born again? Have you received the gift of salvation? Jesus came because sinners like you and me are so selfish and we couldn't heal our own selfish hearts and we couldn't do anything for our past selfish actions in wickedness and sin. And so what we could not do, God did by sending Jesus, living that sinless life, dying in our place, rising again. Have you confessed that Jesus is Lord? And do you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? And if that happens to you, all of your sins, past, present, and future, will be instantly forgiven forever by grace through faith. But then something else will happen. He will give you a new nature, a new heart. And he will, by the power of the Spirit, working within you, increasingly increasingly transform you and make you loving like Jesus is. The Spirit of Christ will come and live within you and increasingly teach you to live selflessly for others. So if you are a Christian, I just want to ask you again, examine your life. See if there are patterns of selfishness in your life. Is the Holy Spirit bringing to mind something right now, a pattern of self-love, self-focus, selfishness that is sinful? Ask him to show you how you spend your time, your energy, your money. Look at that. Find out what you're spending it on. Acknowledge as you do this, you're not your own. You're bought at a price. Your body and all of your resources belong to Christ, bought with his blood. God has made you for himself, and he wants you to live daily for him and for others. He has also given you higher and nobler purposes than living like Scrooge, living for me, living selfishly. He's he's set nobility and transcendent beauty in your heart so you can live for that, storing up treasure in heaven by living for others and ultimately for the glory of God. He's given you everything you need to live a selfless life of love for others. Acknowledge that you are united in Christ with other Christians. We are all part of one body. And when one part of the body suffers, the whole part suffers with it. Think about if you had a stomach ailment, significant stomach ailment and a lot of pain. Maybe not life-threatening or any chronic disease, but you're in a lot of pain. How much of the rest of the members of your body are motivated to help that one part of the body? It's not like the eyes say, look, why should I search on the internet for the best GI doctor? Uh, that's got nothing to do with me. I'm an I. I'm not part of the gastrointestinal system. Your problem, not mine. Uh, it just would never happen. The eyes will search online. The, uh, the appointment will be made. The feet will carry you from the car into the clinic. Uh, everything that is needed for health, your body will be mobilized to do. Why should it be any different with the body of Christ? When one part suffers, the whole part suffers with it. And so we need to find out and, and minister to others as one body of Christ. If you live selflessly and give of yourself, your time, energy, money, resources to others, God will be motivated to supply what you need. 
as he said in Philippians 4, my God will meet all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So when you are generous and give to others, he's going to come back in and supply your need. However, there seems to be an opposite warning. If you choose to live selfishly, God will not be motivated to care for you in the same way. You'll be on your own. Fine, you want to take care of yourself? Then take care of yourself. For me, I think Philippians 4 is to be able to generously give and then see how God uh, gives to us. As it says in Luke 6, 38, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For the measure you use is the measure that you will receive. Now, at the end of this sermon, Edwards showed us a lot of grace, and I'm grateful because um, he could be pretty tough. You read these things, it's like, ugh. And, but he said very clearly, speaking of himself and his congregation, this is very difficult for us. This is hard. That's why I gave you that image of the king salmon swimming upstream every moment. This is hard to do. It's very difficult. We will be fighting our native, twisted selfishness the rest of our lives. And so we have to fight. But what Edward said so sweetly is this. Let all these things incline us, incline us all, to be less selfish than we are and seek more of the opposite excellent spirit of Christ-like selfless love. Close with me in prayer. Father, thank you for the word that we have this morning from 1 Corinthians 13, how it searches us, how it finds uh, problems in our souls, but it also gives us hope as we know in Christ our hope is that when we get to heaven, we will be so completely free from wicked, sinful self-love, and we will find our greatest delight in the glory of God and in the blessedness of our brothers and sisters. We look forward to that day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.